Hebrews 8, verse 6, But now He has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as He is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, He says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on a day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in My covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put My laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be My people." And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know Me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When He said a new covenant, He has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Let's pray. Oh Lord, even now I know I need Your strength. I need Your Spirit to come to teach us, to illumine our hearts in these great truths of the glories of the Gospel of Christ. We would pray that we might see and realize that everything we have in Jesus is so much better than anything that was there in the Old Covenant. I pray that we would see it so much that we would run to it and cling to Him and long for it. So help us even now, O oh Lord, to, to leave from this place rejoicing at the greatness of, of what You've done for us in the new covenant, which is better than the old. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of my message this morning is entitled, A Better Covenant. It comes from verse 6. You can see it right there. The writer writes, But now... He has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as He is also the mediator, here it is, of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Now, over the past eight months, so we've been going through Hebrews, we've seen how the writer lifts high uh, the role of Jesus. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. Better than Joshua. Better than Aaron. Better than all the priests. And today, we're looking at His covenant. How His covenant is better the covenant of Christ is better than the covenant that God made with Israel. And, and my aim this morning is really to show you the glories of the new covenant that you might look at the old covenant and have no desires even to return there. Now, you might not have been thinking that today, but there are some tendencies we might have to go into old covenant sorts of thinking. And I just want to lift before you the, the new covenant. A little bit like a salesman might show his competitors and might, might lift his product you know, among there, I'm just going to show you the new covenant how it's a much better product than the old covenant ever was. In fact, verse 7 really points this out. That's the, the argument, my thrust of my message this morning. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. You see what he's saying? If that first one had been without blame, Without problems, then there would never have been a second one. But the argument goes like this. God made a covenant with Israel, a first covenant. And later He made another covenant with Israel. 
And the existence of the second covenant demonstrates the first one was filled with fault. I mean, you don't go to the bank and renegotiate your mortgage if everything's going fine with you with your current mortgage. You don't go to the store and buy a new furnace if your current furnace is working. You don't write up another contract unless there's a problem with the first one. And you don't make a new covenant unless there's a problem with the old covenant. Now, I want you to know, this, this is the argument that the writer of the Hebrews uses often. He, he often says it this way. Like, like, for instance, chapter 4, verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. But, but the mere fact that he spoke of another day after that showed that the rest that Joshua provided was insufficient. Or, chapter 7, verse 11. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest to rise according to the order of Melchizedek? The very fact that, that God said that there would be another priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek demonstrated that first priesthood wasn't sufficient. And, and I do want you to catch here the significance of these arguments. Okay, He's not... He's not just taking Jesus and saying, okay, let's look at Jesus. Yeah, yeah, he's a better priest. Or he's not looking at Jesus and saying the rest that he provides is better. Or saying that the covenant that Jesus has is better. Rather, what he's doing this. He's going into the Old Covenant. He's going into the Old Testament, taking it at face value and looking here and saying, oh, well, there's this one covenant and then there's another covenant. But the existence of another covenant, what does that say about the first? It means that that was insufficient and faulty in some way. And so he's just going over using the Old Covenant, using the Old Testament to show how everything is better in Jesus. And such is the case with the New Covenant. Verse 7 says that there was fault in that first covenant. I want to take the phrase here, verse 7, verse 8 actually, for finding fault with them. It's my first point. My first point here is, is entitled, Finding Fault. Beginning at verse 8, we see a quotation from the, uh, from the Old Testament that continues on for five verses. It's the longest Old Testament quotation found in the New Testament, and it comes from the book of Jeremiah. It comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, which Phil read portions for us already today. In order to grasp really the impact of this quote, you need to, um, you need to know a few things about Jeremiah. He was a prophet in Judah for about 50 years. Um, he prophesied during the days of, of Babylon when, when Babylon came and destroyed Judah. His days of prophesying weren't glory days. Rather, they were days in which things were, weren't going well for Judah. In fact, there were, things were going quite poorly for Judah. Babylon was a rising power. Judah was a, a waning power. Babylon was going to come and destroy them. And conquer them. And his message to the people of Judah was simple. He said, repent. Repent and turn. He said that many times in many different ways. In fact, if you read through the book of Jeremiah, you're just astonished by the, the creativity of Jeremiah to speak about the different ways in which he, he calls people to repent. I just pulled a few verses out of here. But oftentimes his argument goes for length. It's stories, it's illustrations, it's talk about how to, how to turn your ways and, and turn and follow the Lord rather than your own ways. But here give you an insight. Jeremiah 3, verse 11. Return, faithless Israel. That's another word for repent. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 4, 14. Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, that you may be saved. 
How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? Right? Using a, a washing metaphor. Jeremiah 8, verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord, Do men fall and not get up again? Does one turn away and not repent? Why then is this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? They hold fast to deceit and they refuse to return. There he just talks about if a man falls down, he's going to get up again. But you, Jerusalem, have fallen down. Why don't you get up again? And despite as many, many warnings, the people of Israel refused to heed the cries of Jeremiah. Just refused him. And so, as is always the case of those who refuse the call of God, he gave them over to their own sins. Romans 1. And in this case, it meant destruction of Jerusalem. It meant the destruction of the temple, which was the, the very center of their culture. It meant many of their sons and daughters being carried away into Babylon to learn their ways, like Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It meant ruin for the country. Devastation was terrible. You simply need to read the book of Lamentations and you can feel the pain. Feel the pain of Jeremiah. He says this, After Babylon's come in, destroyed the city, left it ransacked and destroyed. He's there sitting there, having seen the destruction. He says, How lonely sits the city that was once full of people. She's become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces had become a forced laborer. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest, and all her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of distress. And you just need to read Lamentations. It goes on and on and on and on. It's a bad time for Israel. And the question really to be asked at this point is, well, what happened? I mean, how could God's people be overthrown? Didn't God make a promise to them? Didn't God make a covenant with them? And He did. In fact, turning your Bible back to Exodus chapter 19, I want to show you the, the covenant here that was made. Exodus 19 stands after Israel was redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. After all the ten plagues, after God delivering Israel, protecting them in the wilderness, protecting them from Pharaoh's army which is coming at them, making the bitter water sweet, providing them with manna, providing them with water, defeating Amalek. And here they are. They're at Mount Sinai. And it says in chapter 19, verse 3, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Lofty promises, right? Israel would be made God's possession. They'd be a kingdom of priests and they would be a holy nation. Verse 7, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. 
They heard what God said, going to be him a promise, make him a promise, be a great nation, be God's own possession. And they said, yes, you just tell us in all the words you've spoken, we will do. And then shortly after these events, God ratified the covenant with Israel. Moses went up again to Mount Sinai. If you look in verse 18, he went up with smoke. He went up with fire. The mountain quaked violently. God's voice, verse 19, was like thunder. He's up on the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments, various other laws to regulate the affairs of the nation. And then in chapter 24, he comes down. Look at there, chapter 24, verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Again, you just see a second time there of them affirming Yes, that's what we will do. And so Moses, verse 5, builds an altar, burns the bulls upon the altar and, and collects the blood from the altar. Half of it was placed in these basins and half of it he sprinkled right back upon the altar. Then the people, then he took, it says in verse 7, he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people. That is probably Exodus 20, 21, 22, 23. Read it, and all the people said for a third time, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And so Moses took the blood in this basin, according to verse 8. He sprinkled it on the people. Could you imagine that? I take a basin of blood here this morning, and I take it and I sprinkle it out on all of you, and you're all getting bloody in your garments. So he sprinkled it out. That's what he did. He said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance of all these words. And there's the covenant. The Mosaic covenant that was made there just on the outskirts of Egypt in the wilderness, Mount Sinai. There's an agreement between God and Israel. God promised to bless and Israel promised to obey. It was sealed with blood. God gave Israel the laws to observe and they pledged their obedience to the covenant. And if they obeyed, the blessing of God would be upon them. And you might simply say, well, all is well, right? Well, the covenant failed. It failed miserably. Rather than being a kingdom of priests, they became a community of peasants. Rather than being God's possession, they became Babylonian slaves. You say, what? What went wrong? Well, the clue of what went wrong is back in Hebrews chapter 8. Let's, let's turn back there. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 9. This new covenant that I'm making is not like the covenant which I made with the fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. There you go. We're talking about the Mosaic covenant here. For, here's the reason, they did not continue in my covenant. Though the people had pledged all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. On three occasions they pledged that. They failed. They didn't continue in their end of the covenant. And what's interesting about this, this didn't happen years later. It's not like God established His covenant and, and this first generation was really good and the second generation wasn't quite so good and then the third generation fell away and God finally said, no, we're done with you. No, this happened the very generation. I think it happened quickly because in Exodus chapter 32, shortly after this covenant was, was ratified, Chapter 24 is ratified, and Moses goes right up on the mountain, and all we see in 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31 of Exodus is more and more laws, talking about the temple and the sanctuary and the priesthood and all that being set up. 
And so as Moses was gone for 40 days, and then Israel said, where's, where's this Moses? And they built the golden calf down below. God then said to him on the mountain, so he ratified this covenant quickly afterwards, was up there for 40 days, God's giving him this instruction, and then says, go down at once, for your people who you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Blatant idolatry. Quickly, according to Exodus chapter 32, verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, Moses, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. At that point, the covenant was broken. Israel broke the covenant because of their idolatry. And God was through with those people. He's ready to destroy them because they didn't keep up their end of the bargain. And it was only the pleading of Moses that prevented the Lord from doing so. It's a great passage in Exodus chapter 33 when Moses pleads. He says, God, for your own sake, don't do this. Otherwise, the Egyptians will mock you and say, your God wasn't strong enough. You made a promise, come, please help us. And so, God continued by His grace to lead them. It wasn't one strike, you're out with God. He was gracious. To this generation. God continued to lead them. But again, as verse 9 says, they did not continue in My covenant. If you know anything about Israel, you know that they're grumbling people. They complained of their conditions. They complained against Moses. And they didn't believe. When the spies returned from the land of Canaan, the, the people heard their report. And rather than trusting the two spies and trusting the Lord, they trusted the ten and said, we won't go up. Lack of faith. And then, according to verse 9 here of Hebrews chapter 8, God says, I did not care for them. And in Numbers 14, it shares really how God didn't care for them. God spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long will I bear up with this evil congregation who are grumbling against Me? I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against Me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so surely I will do to you. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from twenty years old and upwards, who have grumbled against me. And they won't enter the land except Joshua and Caleb, the two that believed. That's what God said. I don't care for you. I, the Lord, have spoken this. This I will do to all this evil congregation, to all who are gathered against Me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed and they will all die there. God didn't care for them. In the following generations, nothing much changed. The people of Israel continue the wayward ways. But God did extend a love and a grace to His people though because of the Abrahamic covenant which came before, by the way. But He sent them judges when they strayed. He sent them prophets when they strayed. They wanted kings, so He gave them kings. But they still refused His call to repent. Now here's the question though. Where was the fault in the first covenant? Was it with God? Certainly not. God kept His end of the bargain. Was it with the other party? Yes. It was with the nation of Israel. They're at fault. They're the ones that broke their end of the deal. They said all the Lord 
All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and they're the ones who broke their covenant. They can easily argue the covenant himself, itself was faulty, and I believe it was. It's, it's, it wasn't faulty because of God. It's, it's, it's faulty, though, because the conditions to be met were like totally impossible to ever be met. I mean, how can you obey the Lord complete with all your heart and all your time, all your ways? You can't. We have sinful hearts. We can't get it done. And I don't care how hard you try, it's impossible for you to keep it. It reminds me a bit of uh, the time I spent as a camp counselor. Uh, we had what we called the ro- a ropes course. We had some uh, you know, ropes and wires and belaying people up, up way up high. And we also had some ground ropes course. And, and basically what we'd do is we'd take these, these kids and these campers and, and we would take them through like adventures and, and different things that they would try to do. And, and oftentimes we would create scenarios. And, and here's my favorite scenario is uh, I always say, hey guys, you're being chased by the heebie-jeebies. That's what I told them. And uh, they're going to be here in, in about 10 minutes and you've come upon this wall and uh, you, we've got to all get up and over the wall and, and down on the other side. And, and if one of you's left behind, it's not going to work because on the other side there's this special um, door that all of your fingerprints have to be on the door all at the same time. So if anyone's left behind, the heebie-jeebies are going to come and have you for dinner. Okay, and so then they'd have to try to figure out, okay, how do we... How do we how, have you ever done this with a wall before? Maybe there's a, there's a picture I know. It's like a team-building exercise. You say, okay, how do we get the first person way up there? And you figure out, well, maybe someone who's really light, maybe we can get them up there. Or, and then you got to figure out, how, how are you going to get the, the weakest person up there? You know, maybe the heaviest person who can't, not strong enough. And, and you kind of work through, and it's, it's a whole dynamics of working with people and how to accomplish a task. And, and a lot of corporations even take their leadership with that just to learn how to work together as a team and it's it's pretty fun is what it is well at times we'd put a scenario like this we'd set up a scenario that was like absolutely impossible to do i mean sometimes we had a wall sometimes we had a big log and everyone's got to go over the log because this is electrocution log you know that it's going to zap you or you know other various things that you had to do we got to get everyone across somehow or you got to get everyone standing on here, or everyone's here, you got to switch. Some, some things like that we did, but sometimes we set the scenario absolutely impossible. And um, even if, if it looked like they were doing it, we, we set some up as impossible and they were like doing it, we would like make more rules to make it even more impossible. Like, like sometimes we had this rope, that you got to swing across this rope, across this alligator-infested water, right, to get to this platform on the other side without tripping this rope. And uh, I remember one time these kids were going across and they're going to do it. I was like, hmm, you know, so it's a guy swinging across. I like kicked, kicked the rope until I felt up, kicked the rope, you know, and, and pulled it up. But here was a very interesting thing is that when we would work really hard to make the campers fail, the, the lesson learned was how are they going to respond. And it was amazing the amount of bickering and arguing and fault finding and blaming, yelling at each other that took place. And afterwards, we'd sit down and we'd tell them, Here's what we're doing. We tried to make it impossible so as to teach you guys a little bit about what it means to fail. And it made a big impact on their lives. I know one time I did this college group and we were talking about this past week and it makes a big impact on people. That's a bit like the law though. The law is like this, this, this law that you can never accomplish. You can never do it. 
It was set up not really as a, as a fundamental way that God's going to say, okay, you obey everything and I'm going to bless you. God saw that they were going to fail, but in their failure they should have seen their sin and should have repented. Romans 3.20 through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And that's what should have taken place with the law. The law was like this giant spotlight in their lives. And when they were unable to walk in the ways of God, they should have cried out to the Lord and said, we've sinned, we can't, we help, we need your grace. But rather than doing that, the Hebrew people continued to rebel. They, they grumbled and complained. They were arrogant in their own ways. They disregarded the law of God. They walked in their own ways. And God then gave them over, as He always does to those who continue in their sin. Israel in the north was conquered by the Assyrians. And then Babylon in the south was taken into, Judah in the south was taken in exile to Babylonia. And then here, it's in the middle of the exile. Now, I'm not sure whether it's before or after, but at some point in the crisis of Jeremiah's ministry, when Babylon surely is going to come upon them to destroy them, when exactly it is, I'm not sure, but Jeremiah had already predicted about how Judah is going to fall and how they're going to be exiled. Jeremiah stands up and says this, Hope is not lost! You, you are paying for the fruit of your sin. Yes, you're experiencing it. Yes, you will go in exile. Yes, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. But I'm going to tell you something which is going to give you great hope. Here's what the God has said. Behold, days are coming. Verse 8 says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And this new covenant would help solve their problem of sin. I love the way that one commentator puts it. He puts it like this. The Old Covenant failed because of the sinfulness of the nation for which it had no remedy. And the New Covenant, however, has such a remedy. The Old Covenant failed because it didn't have a remedy for sin, but the New Covenant has a remedy. And of course, we know what the remedy is, right? It's the cross of Christ. It's Jesus dying in our place forgive us our sins, to break down the wall of animosity between us and God and to reconcile us with Him and then to give us changed hearts and changed lives to serve Him. And that's exactly what's going to take place here in verses 10 through 12 with my next point. The Old Covenant had no remedy. The New point, Covenant has a remedy because the New Covenant is based upon better promises. Better promises. And again, I just take the verbiage of my, my point from verse 6 says, by as much as He's also the mediator of a better covenant which has been acted on better promises. And verses 10 through 12 have four promises that come in the new covenant. As we go through them, I'm sure you realize the blessings that come to us in Jesus Christ. My first point was the bad news, finding fault with the old covenant, and not the good news, finding joy in the, the new covenant. Four promises. First promise, verse 10a, inner desire. An inner desire. God says, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. This is what God does in the heart of those who believe in Jesus Christ. He gives us an, an inner desire. He gives us a heart to live for Him. Now, this is more than mere memorization. It's more than mere intellect. It's not that, that we take the law of God and we just it is there that we know. It's not just in our head. There are many 
who memorize the Pentateuch, memorize the law before, it's, it's, but their hearts are cold. It's not that. It's, it's, it's beyond the head. It's into the heart where the feelings and the passions and the emotions are. It's God giving us a heart that, that knows God's Word and wants to obey God's Word. There's a difference between knowing and not really wanting to do it and knowing and wanting to do it, right? The one, the one who knows it will, will find the exceptions, will argue, and will, will argue technicalities, and doesn't really want to, but knows it and will be right on the edge. But the one who wants to will look at it and will run to the law exactly. And that's what God does with someone who He regenerates, who He changes. He makes us a new creature, Second Corinthians 5.17 says, that has new desires, that wants to love and serve and obey and follow after God. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5. Right? He changes us. He renews us. He gives a new heart and a new mind to follow those ways. Perhaps you remember the night in which Jesus was talking with Nicodemus. Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was confused about this. And when he was, Jesus said, are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand the work that needs to take place in the heart to change someone radically? Nicodemus, don't you understand that you need to have a new heart? Isn't that what Jeremiah wrote about? Isn't that the promise of the new thing coming? You must be born again. You must have a new heart. God must put in your hearts the law of God. must write them in our minds and on our hearts. Ezekiel promised the same thing. This is the promise of the new covenant. The old covenant was written on tablets of stone on the mountain, but the new covenant is written on tablets in our hearts. The old covenant was a list of rules. The new covenant is a heart of desire. And I'll say that the difference between rules and desire doesn't compare. The desire is way better. I'm thinking of two teenage boys. Both of them have similar qualities. Both grew up in church, church-going families. Both have attended church almost every Sunday of their life. They both have attended Christian school, behaved well, done fine grades, kept from evil influences. On the outside, you could hardly tell them apart. But you go into hearts, you can tell a difference in these two boys. The first boy has been compelled his whole life by a domineering father and oppressive mother. He's never missed church because, not because he doesn't have a heart to go to church, but because mom and dad bring him to church and force him to church. He's behaved well at school because he's very fearful what would happen if he ever gets called to the principal's office because mom and dad would make his life miserable for months. He stayed away from the party scene, not because he didn't want to, but because mom and dad wouldn't let him go. The second boy has embraced the gospel of Christ. It's changed him on the inside. He's experienced the new birth. The outside looks the same. He's, he's never missed church because he wants to be with God's people. He's behaved well at school because he delights to honor those in authority. Parents have told him to go to school. His teachers tell him he does what he's told. He stayed away from the party scene because he sees how such influences will pull him away from what God loves. Now, what's the difference between these two boys? The outside, there's not a lot. But inside, there's a huge difference. And it will show itself when they go to college. 
They go off to college. And the one boy finally feels his freedom. He gets to do what he wants. No church, lots of parties, and school if it's convenient. I knew many teenage boys like that. It confused the world out of me when I was a 19-year-old. See all these church-going kids. You go to church, and then they, they came to college and like Zippo with Christianity. Oh, yeah, that's why I grew up with. I don't believe that. Then the other boy, likewise, gets to do what he wants, but he will use his freedom to do what is right. He'll find a fellowship group because he likes to be with God's people. He'll find a church to be at. His school will be a way to honor God. and He'll work hard his classes. He'll avoid the parties because of the wickedness there. And that's the difference between the Old and the New Covenant. The Old had outside constraints, but the New has an internal desire that's placed in every believer in Christ. And that's what God does to save us in this day and age in the New Testament. He changes our hearts. He changes our desires. And I just say this, where the heart is willing, the feet will be swift to run to obedience. But when the heart is not there, you can try to constrain it externally, and you'll constrain some, but it won't take place. That's how the New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant, because God gives us an inner desire. The second way, second better promise, comes at the end of verse 10. God says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here's a relationship with God. God says, I will be their God and they should be my people. There is a, there's, a, there's a relationship here. We, believers, will identify the Lord as our God and most amazingly, He will identify us as His people. But there's more here than just relationship. Even it's, it's I call it a love relationship also. These are the words of a lover. I want you to picture now a man and a woman in front of a church at an altar. Pastor standing in front of them. She's dressed in white with a veil over her head. He's got a tuxedo on. They're standing before all their friends and their family. The pastor turns to the man and says, Do you take this woman as your lawfully wedded wife? And he says, I do. And I, I turn to the, the woman. She says, I say, Do you take this woman to be this man? To be, do you take this man to be your lawfully... Whatever, you understand. And she says, I do. And, and, and what takes place there? They are saying, as Song of Solomon 6, verse 3 says, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. Love relationship. Emotion rings through these words. Commitment rings through these words. It's as if God brings us to Himself. He says, we're in this together. I'm yours. You're mine. Where you go, I'm going to go. You know, a little bit like Ruth when he says, I will be, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. I'm just in this. And God also says, and you are going to be mine. There's nothing going to separate us. What God has joined together, let no man separate. This is the promise of the new covenant. Relationship, love, commitment, unity, oneness, agreement. You remember the motto of the three musketeers, right? What do they say? All for one and one for all. That's the spirit here of this. Saying, I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. We're all for God and God is all for us different than the covenant made on Mount Sinai. In that covenant, when the people went astray, God let them go. He said, I don't care for them. But not here. The promise of the new covenant is that God will care for us. He will care for us until the end because He's committed to us in a loving relationship. And in fact, this is where history is headed. In Revelation 21, after the appearance of the new heaven and the new earth, 
There's this loud voice that comes from the throne and will say, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. There's, there's people. He's with them. There's together unity. That's the new covenant. And that's really why we can draw near to God. Hebrews 4.16 Why we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace because there's this relationship of love that God has for us. He'll care for us. An inner desire, relationship with God. Third promise, verse 11, the knowledge of God. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know Me from the least to the greatest of them. Now these words here picture the, the promise of a universal knowledge of God. Isaiah prophesied the day when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, that's not been fulfilled yet. Totally. There are many people in this world who don't know the Lord. That's why we need to talk with our brother. Verse 11. That's why we need to talk to our fellow citizen. That's why we need to, to call the world to know the Lord. It's because many don't. This is why I went and talked to my neighbor yesterday. We, uh, our family went to uh, Freeport. You all knew about it. Just uh, the Steve Lawson, one of the greatest preachers in America, was preaching there. And we went and we went to this Bible conference. Friday night was so good. It was just a Von night Friday night. Kind of a date night. It was so good. And then we, uh, we brought our kids. We said, kids, why don't you come along and see this as well. Spoke Luke 24, the high call of discipleship. It was just an, an excellent time. And uh, on the way home, I'm driving into the garage. I see my neighbor out there in the yard working. And I said, I want to go talk with him. And so I just walked across one neighbor's yard. And my neighbor said, hi, Steve. I said, hi, but I'll talk to you later. But I'm going to talk to this guy over here. So I kind of walked across the yard to talk with this man. And he was working in the yard. I had a question with him with something. And, and I kind of remember praying just on the way. Just, God, give me, give me something to talk to him about. And uh, in the course of our conversation, you know, we would probably talk for maybe 10 minutes or so, he brought up just about how his daughter had, uh, had a, a full-ride athletic scholarship to a college and how, how it really she was forced to commit time to her sport. <laughs> so, thinking like, I haven't even talked to you about this, Yvonne, but Steve Lawson used this illustration about having been a quarterback for Texas Tech. And he said that um, he just thought about athletics when he was a kid, and and he was there, full ride, totally everything, and so it was it was it was all free. He said uh, the the university once he signed that scholarship, they paid for his tuition, they paid for his travel to get out there, they paid for his books, they paid for his student housing, they paid for his football uniform, they paid for his cleats, they paid for his locker, anything he had need when he was there, everything totally free. And yet, from the moment he signed the scholarship, he said it cost him everything. Because now he was Texas Tech's. And he was to work out with the team, he was to eat with the team, he was to practice with the team, he was to travel with the team. And so I'm telling my neighbor, oh, she just told me like this illustration I heard. And I told him, I said, you know what, that, that's a picture of the Gospel. I just, just came back from this Bible conference and this guy told me this illustration, went through the illustration. I said, that's a, that's a picture of the Gospel, that God by His grace saves us 
And yet it costs us our whole life. It costs us everything. And he just kind of went, okay. <laughs> and went along his way. But that's why I need to have that conversation is because people don't know the Lord. And there will be a day when such conversation won't need to take place. Because all will know the Lord from the greatest to the least of them. And although this someday will take place in heaven really, there, uh, we know it does take place in part today in the church. So the new covenant is starting to be fulfilled here because the church of Jesus Christ is different than Israel. Membership in Israel came by birth. When you're born of Jewish parents, boom, you're in Israel. You're part of the covenant. But membership into the church of Jesus Christ comes by rebirth. So when you come to know Jesus, you're brought into His church because He changes you. It's the church that He is building. And within the church, there is a measure of the knowledge of God because the church is a community of the redeemed. The nation of Israel certainly had pockets where there were people who genuinely knew God, but they were always in the minority. In the days of Moses, Joshua and Caleb were the only two guys. So they had a community of two. The days of the judges, whole generations arose that did not know the Lord. In the days of Elijah, they were on the order of 7,000 people who didn't know the Lord, even though that was a small percentage. In the days of Josiah, very few, because they didn't have the law. They lost it way in the temple someplace. They had to dust, find it and then dust it off. And when you look at the overall wickedness of the nation, even in, Jer- in Jeremiah's day, you know the number of believers was small And never was there a time in Israel's history and the entire nation was together in full belief of the Lord, but not so in the church of Jesus Christ. In the church, there's a measure. We get a taste of the universal knowledge of God. How sweet it is, is it not, to gather together with saints who know and love Jesus, who you don't have to like call them to know Christ because they know Jesus. Those are the happiest times of my life. When I'm with people who know Jesus and who love Him and who are walking with Him and who are serving Him and, and I don't have to like tell them, oh, you need to believe in Jesus because they do. And they encourage me and I encourage them and it's a, it's a great time. And such is the case as we get to taste of new, in the new covenant, the fellowship in the church. Now, admittedly, there are many in the external church of Jesus Christ who are not believers. They come, faithfully attend, Engage in Bible studies, but they don't know the Lord. And this is the warning that Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and your name cast out demons, and your name perform many miracles? And he will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are many professing Christians going to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, look at all the things I did for you. He's going to say, depart from me. You never knew me. They were still in the Mosaic Covenant trying to do all these things rather than trusting in, in Christ. I say, is this you? I call you to believe and to know the Lord of the New Covenant. This is eternal life, Jesus says that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You sent. Eternal life is knowing God, like verse 11 says, and has been poured out to us in the New Covenant. Well, let's look at the last promise. 
Forgiveness of sins, verse 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I think this promise is really the crowning promise of all promises because I believe your inner desire for God will only come as you experience forgiveness of sins. And I would say that your relationship with God will only take place once that barrier of sin has been broken down. And I would say you only know the Lord when you know His grace. And with textual support, I say this a crowning promise because verse 12 starts with this for. It's an explanatory word. Because. Right? They will all know Me. I can put My laws in their hearts. I'll be their God. They should be My people. Because I'll be merciful to their iniquities. In other words, their inner desire for Me is going to come about because I'm merciful to their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. They will have a relationship with Me because I'll be merciful to their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. I'll po- they will possess the knowledge of God. Why? Because I'll be merciful to their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. See, because when sins are fully and finally and really dealt with, blessings follow. Forgiveness of sins is the core of the new covenant. Christ poured out for us upon the cross of Christ. Jesus said to His disciples when He was leaving them, He said, this, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all generations beginning from Jerusalem. What's the message that Jesus preached? Repentance for forgiveness. You repent and you'll be forgiven not only in Jerusalem, but among all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And that's where we see the, the, the New Covenant. This is the marvels of it as well, is that it's not merely just to the house of Israel and Judah, though it says it's just to the house of Israel and Judah. It has overflowed to all who believe in Jesus. This covenant that God made to this specific people has now overflowed to the nations. Jesus said this is a message that needs to get out, and it's come to us as well. Repentance for forgiveness is exactly the same thing the apostles preached. On the day of Pentecost, Fifty days after Easter, which by the way, today is 49 days after Easter. It's when Pentecost is normally celebrated on this Sunday. It's appropriate to quote from this verse. Peter stood up. He says, repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? It was repentance again for the forgiveness of sins. The people repented. They had their sins forgiven and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the fruit that took place there of those in Jerusalem was marvelous. As God poured out the new covenant to them and as He, as he put the law of God upon their hearts and their minds and as He promised to be their God and as He forgave them of their sins and they knew the Lord, they went out, they, just compelled by this inner desire, they just went out every day and in the temple from house to house, they kept right on preaching, Jesus is the Christ. They were so enthralled with it. It was, it was in their hearts, it was in their minds. It must have made such a change in them that they spoke. And I say that in our evangelism, that's the thing that's going to help. The thing that's going to change everything is when, when, when you realize just the, the blessings you have in the New Covenant and it changes you. You're going to speak out and you're going to tell others about it. It wasn't external pressure upon the apostles saying, well, God really needs you to witness for Him. It was the joy of sins forgiving. It was the joy of the blessings that's come in the New Covenant. They had this desire to share what they had with others. 
And I just say this, church family, when you come to grasp the greatness of the reality of sins forgiven, it will change everything in your life. When you grasp the reality of the new covenant, it changes everything. That by faith in Jesus, you're no longer condemned. By faith in Jesus, we come and stand before God. We have a relationship with God and we'll enjoy Him forever. And as Romans 8 says, that we become fellow heirs with Jesus. Joint heirs. As much as Jesus has inherited the universe, so will we. Not because we're righteous, but because we believe in Him. And I just say, if you come to embrace that and see that, you'll never want to go back to the Old Covenant. The new is so much better. Look what's going to happen with the Old Covenant. When He said, a new covenant, He has made the first obsolete. There is the Mosaic Covenant, the law, is obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. I believe that when the writer wrote this, sacrifices were still taking place. There still was a temple. I think this is before 70 A.D. when the Romans came and destroyed. And he said, these things are about to disappear. And in just a few short years, when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem, those things indeed did disappear because the Old Covenant was obsolete. It's no longer needed. It's almost as if the Old Covenant was taken up, wrapped up in a, in a wad and thrown into the garbage. Because it, it wrote of something to come and, and that which had come was here. Now, the Old Covenant has definite things to teach us and it is helpful mostly to ground us in history to say that the coming of Jesus was all anticipated. But sadly, there are many who choose the ways of the Old Covenant above the New. Still, I mean, this is the predominant religion across America. It's the predominant religion across all lands. Is it that you, you, you weigh your good and your bad and you, you seek to do your good to reach up to God and you, you seek, to, seek to climb the ladder and you seek to say, okay, all that He said I will do. And there's many well-intentioned church folk who are going to try to do everything that He says He will do. I will do. And thinking and trusting that that's going to make it there. But that Mosaic Covenant has been passed away. Rather, what you need is this. is You need God to promise to be your God and, and you need God to, to promise and, and show, that, show Himself to you and write His law upon your heart and forgive you of your sins. That's what you need. Not living in a way like the old covenant. I mean, people don't sacrifice today. Right? They don't go trying to do this. But, but there is enough that people in spirit try to earn their way to God and try to be good enough and try to merit things before God. And I say the, the way of the new covenant is much better. Well, so salesmen, have I convinced you of that? I, I hope so that we would glory in the new covenant to us. So let's pray. Lord, I've, I've tried the best I can do. I can't do any better just to put before us the glories of Jesus week in, week out of how much greater the new covenant is than the old. Oh God, convince us of these things. Give us a joy that transcends all joys. Give us a heart that transcends all hearts. So we might know where we're justified. We might know where we're forgiven. And might glory in Jesus. We trust You and love You in Jesus' name. Amen.